Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. For five weeks now, really six, because we'll have a one-week break in the middle, but for five parts, we're going to be looking at Christ-centered worship, a theology and philosophy of worship. In other words, what is it that drives us in our worship? And today, from Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be seeing the idea that God's word is what drives our worship, word-driven worship from Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. So if you have your Bible and you're in Colossians 3, we'll read it together now. Colossians 3, 12. Paul writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Imagine with me this morning that as you entered worship and you observed the worship of God's people, you observed a room full of people worshiping wholeheartedly. As you looked at the, the faces and, and heard the words and shared the passion of the people in this room, it was compelling. Everyone understood that, that our role here this morning is to submit ourselves to the Word of God and that we're here to exalt Christ, exalt the Father, Son, and Spirit together in our worship. And as you observed what happened here, it didn't just stop here. The people here, not only here, they understand that then our job is to share the Word with each other. As we go, God's word doesn't stop here. It then flows through us to the people around us. Well, this kind of world isn't just imaginary. It can be the testimony, the lived out reality of God's people. And the witness of that kind of worship is compelling. As God's people come to us, come to him through our Savior, Jesus. As a church, we can spend a lot of time wondering how we can get people to come. How it is that we could attract people. But the witness of God's word is that the good news of Jesus Christ, as it changes us from the inside out and then is lived out and shared among God's people, is itself so compelling that it draws people to Christ. You are the light of the world, but let not your light be hidden under a bushel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul describes Christians this way. He says, you are the aroma of Christ. To some, a fragrance of death leading to death, but to others, a fragrance of life leading to life. You ever have uh, this experience where maybe you're on a hike or a walk through your neighborhood, and before you can see it, you smell it. 
It's springtime, and it wafts toward you, and it's so fragrant. You know it's there, but you don't see it. And then you look over, and on the fence or on a set of bushes, you spy the honeysuckle vine. Because when it's in full bloom, it's so fragrant. If the wind is blowing the right direction, you don't even have to see it. You know it's there. And that is how God's word describes us. The community of Christ is something where someone shouldn't even have to declare their allegiance. You smell it on them. It's, it's the aroma of Christ. And then you put all those honeysuckle vines together and you walk in here and bam, it's just like a blast of flavor. And the, and the, and the scent that wafts toward people as they see and hear our worship is Christ. For thousands of years, God's people have gathered to worship him. In the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, they did it wandering through the wilderness in a tent, a tabernacle. And then they built a glorious temple. But that temple was destroyed, and we arrive in the New Covenant, the New Testament, and God declares to us that we are the temple of God. God's Spirit now lives in us and moves among us. God's glory is most clearly seen in his people. You see, worship is about God. It's from God, and it's for God. Well, this is true. As God's people, we should spend time thinking about worship. Not about what we want in worship, but about what God says about worship, how he directs us to worship. Now, There is no doubt that we all come with preconceived ideas about worship. I mean, the the idea of worship brings up pictures for all of us. That's that's me, that's you, that's everyone in here. But what I'm going to encourage us to do is is to take that picture and just set it aside. doesn't mean it doesn't matter, but just set it aside for a minute and let's do our best to set aside our preconceived notions, preferences, ideas, and just do our best to clear our minds and ask ourselves, what does God say about worship? worship. And our passage today highlights this truth, that God's word drives everything we do in worship. God's word drives everything we do in worship. It sweetens our attitude. It tells us the content, what we use in worship, and it demonstrates God's purposes in worship. Now, I got some good news for you this morning. Y'all look pretty nice. Now, that tells me that you gave some thought this morning to what you were going to wear. So yesterday, I'm, I'm working uh, around our house. I don't look like this. I'm uh, a little bit sweaty, maybe a little bit stinky. I got an old t-shirt on, and I'm, I'm just, you know, hanging a fan. And I don't look this nice. But this morning, I thought, okay, what am I going to wear for worship tomorrow? Now, I'm kind of the guy, it doesn't matter, just for I mean, I get my clothes out the night before, before I get in bed, they're, they're hanging, they're ready to go, because I want to know the next morning, I'm not going to you know, find a spot on my shirt or it's wrinkled, but like, I just want to be prepared. We all think about what we put on for worship. But what we're going to see here is that God's word gives less attention to the clothing that we wear and more attention to the attitude that we put on for worship. If you look in verse 12... Look at the first three words, put on then. It's clothing language. He's talking about what we wear. 
And so God's word addresses our attitude in worship. We should spend more time thinking about the attitude we bring with us and the clothes we wear. Now, teaching throughout the New Testament letters or epistles tends to flow like this. We typically have an introduction of doctrine or theology. And so God explains to us who he is and how he's at work in the world. And then that often flows into Christian living. So an easy example of this is the book of Ephesians. Because Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are doctrine, Christian doctrine. Then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are how you live it out. And so what we've got here in the book of Colossians is that sort of a flow. So when we arrive and the third word in this is put on then, it's telling us, okay, then, therefore, in light of something that came before. How do we live in light of the gospel? So Colossians chapter 1 begins with one of the most beautiful and extended meditations on the nature of Christ in all of Scripture. Colossians 1.15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might be preeminent. So if this is Jesus Christ, if he is the creator, if he is the head of the church, if he is the firstborn, if he must be preeminent, how should we live in light of that? Well, Colossians 3 answers this question. And verses 12 through 17 address specifically how the gospel affects our worship. And the first thing that Paul addresses in our worship is our attitude in worship. But before we address the specific aspects of worship, we'd be skipping ahead if we didn't note first who worships God. Look again at verse 12. Who does God address? Put on, he says, as God's chosen ones. Now, we often call one another uh, believers or Christians, but Christian has become a common term, but it's not the most common term we find in our Bibles. We find uh, the term disciples. We find here the chosen ones or the elect, or we find uh, followers of Christ or children of God. Ephesians 1 tells us how this happens. Christ chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. We were having a conversation around the dinner table recently with our kids. We were talking about something. I can't even remember exactly what it was, but it was long before we had children. And I think, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it was, it was well before Liz and I were married. And so our kids are hearing this conversation. They're like, that was before we were born? Like, yeah, that time existed. And they're like, wait, y'all weren't even married yet? Nope. We, I mean, believe it or not, there was a time when we hadn't even conceived of the possibility that you could exist. <laughs> Mind blown. Like, there's never been a world without us. Well, this is true for all of us. Ephesians 1 says that this is true. Before the foundation of the world, and he goes on, in Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, God planned redemption before it even occurred to anyone that you could exist. From eternity past, 
He accomplished it through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and he applies it to us through our faith in Christ. God redeems sinners through the blood of Christ. And this is no average forgiveness. This isn't how you and I forgive each other. He forgives us, he says, according to the riches of his grace. Worship is for those who are forgiven through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning with a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ, you can worship God. But if you don't know God through faith in Christ, you cannot worship him because you don't know him. Worship is for those who are forgiven through the blood of Christ. You see, God is a good creator, Yet our rebellion, first through Adam and Eve, our first father and mother, and then through every person born into the world since then, is a life born in rebellion against our Creator. And the only thing that turns rebels into friends of God is the blood of Christ. So this morning, if you're here without Christ, the rest of this, it ain't for you. But if you know Christ, you can worship God. So friend, if you're here, apart from Christ, would you turn from your sin and trust him? You can become a worshiper of God, and not only a worshiper, God makes you a member of his family with all the rights and privileges of what it means to be a son or daughter of the king of the universe. Would you come to God through Christ? Well, if worship is for those who know God through faith, how should we approach God in worship? So Paul uses this clothing metaphor, what you put on, to tell us how we approach God as his chosen people. And he says, first, put on grace. Now, verse 12 uses a series of descriptions, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So a lot of words, we're summing it up with this one word, grace. Compassionate hearts is a reference to the deepest part of our being. It's who we are at our very essence And God says that what should characterize our core is mercy or compassion. He goes on to say that kindness, kindness reflects God's character. It's sometimes used to describe God's goodness. God's people should reflect his goodness to those around us. Humility, well Philippians 2 tells us that humility is looking not only to your own interests, because we're all real good at that, but also to the interests of others. In other words, we approach relationships, worship, not asking what we can get, but how we can serve the interests of others. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus, speaking to the crowd, says, Come to me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. The word meek is here in verse 12. One writer describes this as the ability to be in conflict with someone else. And have that person receive our criticism or a difference of opinion, not as an attack, but as an offer of help. Patience, it's the way we respond to one another. Because grace, kindness, they're our heart attitudes. But the difficulty, like even if all this is true, if you put on gracious, kindness, mercy, the difficulty with people is that they're people. And that's why Paul says when he says next, you must put on forgiveness. Now, you no doubt 
are always gracious, kind, humble, patient. Appreciate that. <laughs> but even if that's true of you, there's no doubt that you'll note the people around you, they're not as good at this as you are. And so sometimes we have to forgive each other, bearing with one another. And if you have a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Verse 13 teases out the idea of patience a little bit, bearing with one another. It's the idea of putting up with that person. Sometimes people are hard to live with. Sometimes you're hard to live with. Sometimes I'm hard to live with. I mean, even in the body of Christ, there are people that we got to put up with. But that's not enough. He goes on and says we must forgive each other. And not just any kind of forgiveness will do. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive each other. We forgive others like our Father forgives us. Now, I'm about to jump into something, and you can probably look at me and tell this is true, but this is absolutely true. We're going to talk about fashion here for a minute. Now, I'm not talking about New York Fashion Week or Paris Fashion Week or whatever fashion week they have, but I just want you to imagine with me this morning uh, that, that you came here and you're kind of looking at yourself, maybe you've got a full-length mirror and you're looking at this and, and you're wondering, okay, something's not, not right here. Like, I know something's not right. Like, what do I do? And so you're flipping through your closet and then you find that scarf. And you throw that scarf and that scarf, it just ties it all together. You throw on that scarf, and you're like, it pops, just like you were hoping. You, you walk out the door, and, and that's the thing. Or maybe it's a set of earrings, or a watch, or a belt. You got it going on this morning, and you know it's because of that. It's that last piece. Now, we may look at you and like, she looked nice. We may not know why you look so nice, but you know, you put it on. Well, God says that's what love is. He says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, this sounds like, above all, put on love. And it sounds like love is the most important thing, and that's, that's true in one sense, but that's not what this is saying. It's saying, upon all, love. In other words, like, love's like that scarf. It makes everything look real nice. So if you come in, got something going on, but you got that nice scarf on, it's like, you look pretty nice. Love is like that for us as Christians. I mean, you could sing real bad, you could be a stick in the mud, but if you love, it makes everything else look nice. Love is the crowning garment that ties everything together. He goes on to say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body and be thankful. Now the language here is kind of surprising. Let the peace of Christ rule. We sometimes think of peace as passive. You go along to get along so you're peaceful. So the idea of peace ruling catches us off guard. Now, we are now officially Let's say, well, we're almost officially, either today or tomorrow, sometime officially into fall. And with fall comes football. And some of you are already watching your favorite team, or some of you are hoping to watch your favorite team shortly, because everything's a little bit 
off kilter right now. But as you watch that, uh, our son, you are, we're watching the game, he'll say, okay, who's the, who's the red team? I'll tell him, who's the white team? Okay, who's the black team? Oh, the guy in the black and white strip, uh, they, they're not a team. They're the referees. Now, referees, they're there hopefully going unnoticed. But when they're noticed, it's often on a difficult or controversial call. Now, sometimes it's just the guy made a stupid mistake. That does happen. But often what happens is there's, there's a call that's difficult to make, and the referee has to make a judgment. That's his or her job. So they make a call in that moment, and depending on which color shirt you're wearing at home, it leads you to say, the guy's a genius, or you ought to ride him out of town on a rail. That's pretty much it. The referee makes a ruling. And that's what we have going on here. Let the peace of Christ make the ruling. In other words, when you're in conflict with someone else, the peace of Christ should dictate how we respond. Doesn't mean that we never question or differ. It does mean that when we have a concern or a difference of opinion, the controlling factor in our concern must not be our preferences or opinion, but the glory and mission of Christ. The peace of Christ is the controlling factor in our relationships. I thought you said we were here to talk about worship. But all we've talked about is relationships. Brothers and sisters, we cannot worship God rightly if we don't bring with us a gracious, humble, patient, kind, loving, peaceable attitude. We spend so much time arguing about what God's word is either unclear about or completely silent about. And ignore what's really clear. We must treat one another with grace and kindness. Ephesians 5.2 puts it this way. Walk in love as Christ has loved you. One of the most important parts in worship for you is the way you love and encourage and minister grace to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can't love each other if we're not in relationship with each other. Now, I want you to imagine with me this morning that you didn't walk into a worship service. You walked into the doctor's office. Now, some of you immediately got the shakes because they walk into the doctor's office, and what do they do? They, they, they check some things. They might check your height and your weight, and you're hoping those are in pretty good ratio, or they check your blood pressure. They snap that thing on your arm. They take your temperature. Right now, they want to let, even let you out of the car if they're not, you know, zapping your temperature on your forehead. I mean, they want to know what you're like. What are they doing? All of those things are indicators. They don't tell you that you're healthy, but they could tell you you're unhealthy, they're looking for vital signs. You got no heartbeat? Okay, we got a problem. Let's get this guy in there real quick. You're looking for signs of health. And so if we were here right now for a, for a doctor visit, a checkup, instead of a worship service, what would our health indicators say? What kind of indicators would we look for? If we were taking the kindness meter and, and, and checking the pulse on our kindness or our patience with each other or our forgiving hearts, you know, the way God has forgiven us, 
and we took some vital signs on these things, what would they say? Would they say vibrant, growing, healthy, loving, kind, patient, humble? Or would they say, we better get this guy in triage because it's not going so hot? Hearts that are quick to repent of sin, wholehearted participation in worship. What do the vital signs say? So this is the attitude that we put on. What is it then that we do in worship? What's the content of our worship? And verse 16 answers this question. God's word drives what we do and how we do it. First, it's God's word in us. Now, the word of God is a fairly common phrase in Scripture, or the word of the Lord. But the word of Christ is relatively rare. It appears only here and also in Hebrews 6, 1. The word of Christ is the word that declares who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And Paul says, this word should dwell in us richly. In other words, we worship by allowing the word of God to soak into our souls. And it soaks in so deeply that it takes up residence there. You might say, God's word lives there. And it reveals Christ to us. But brothers and sisters, God's word can't live in us if we're not in the word. You ever had a bite of that cheesecake? You know the one I'm talking about. It's so rich. The minute you put it in your mouth, you're like, it gets your attention. And it's so rich and so heavy. You know, like, I can't eat, like, a wedge. i got to eat a slice of this cheesecake because it's so rich. In fact, as it slides down into your stomach, you're like, boom, it just took up residence there. That's the way God's word is to be in our lives. It's, it's to soak into us. It's not something we give a quick nod to or we grab a snack for inspiration. God's word isn't like a Lay's potato chip. It's the tastiest food, the best morsel. Imagine with me for a minute here that you are a fan of fine cheese. Now, you know that cheese is like a lot of other things in life. It divides. And so you have a bite of what you consider the best cheese and, you, and your kid's there with you and you offer that same child a bite of that cheese and let's say it's a $50 bite it's like the best cheese that money can buy and that child gets close takes one whiff of that cheese like I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole well is that because the child is stupid no, it's because that child hasn't developed a taste for that rich food. And so many of us have no taste for the riches of God's word. We're so busy snacking on everything else that we miss what's right in front of us. We don't know God's word. We don't mind the depths of God's word. We don't dig into God's word. Our worship is rote and meaningless because God's word doesn't dwell in us richly. Now, it's possible that you've heard this as individual instruction. I need to be in God's word so God's word can live in me. And that's true. That is true. But Paul is giving this command in the context of the corporate 
body of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. It's the content and the driver of our worship. So we read the word. We pray God's word. We sing God's word. We preach God's word. And we see God's word in the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, historically, this idea has been called the regulative principle. Now, this regulative principle comes from a Latin word, regula, which means standard or rule. In other words, God's word is our standard, our rule for worship. Now, it was in uh, 2018 that Pastor Bartholomew Orr of Brown Baptist Church in Mississippi went viral because that day, uh, Pastor Orr entered the worship service in a way that got everyone's attention. He came in on a zip line and landed on the platform. Now, I have no doubt that I did that this morning. Y'all would remember what happened here in church this morning. Or uh, this headline from 2016, Congregation Loses Third Pastor at a Botched Dirt Bike Jump Onto Church Stage. Now, this is a parody, okay? So this did not happen. That's from a parody uh, website, the Babylon Bee. I enjoyed the quotes from one congregation member. It looked like Pastor Zane was going to make it. Our last pastor froze up and landed way short. At least Z got some super sick air before overshooting the stage and crashing through the window to his death. Now, maybe y'all are like, yeah, we got it going on. Or maybe there's something in you that's like, eh, maybe that's going a little bit too far. But how would we know? How would we know what's too far? How would we know what we should be doing and when it's too much? There are two basic ways that Christians throughout church history have approached worship. One is pro-dirt bike, one is anti-dirt bike. Not really. But there are two kind of major categories here. And the first is the regulative principle. What the regulative principle says is that everything we do in worship derives from God's word. So just what the word models or lives out. This, this is a framework. Everything we do lives within this framework. So either it's commanded in God's word, sing to the Lord, or it's modeled in God's word. We see people in the word doing it, or it's implied by what's happening in the word of God. The, the word provides the boundaries. Now, the second main approach is what we call the normative principle. So this is anything that's not forbidden by the word. So we've got God's word. The regular principle says everything needs to fit in here. Now the normative principle adds to this and says we got all this other stuff that we can do as long as it's not forbidden in God's word. Now there are two primary difficulties with the normative principle. One of which is you got so much going on here that a lot of what you're doing is, is just our ideas. It's just humans doing what humans want to do. So we're driven by our preferences, what we want to do, rather than by the word. So if we're not careful, then we become the standard rather than God becoming the standard. We spend a lot of time asking what people want rather than asking what God wants. So the first problem is that it becomes, worship becomes largely human, a human creation. But the second is that we undermine, wittingly or unwittingly, the sufficiency of God's word. That God's word is enough for everything we do. Now, I want to pause here and say this. The point of this is not to take pot shots at, at people who do things differently. Because we're not here to criticize the sincerity of people or throw stones at other people. I'm more merely trying to say that the healthiest way to worship is to align what we do as closely as possible to God's word. That that's the healthiest way to do this. 
Well, why is this so important? Well, in Leviticus chapter 10, uh, you've got the Israelites passing down the faith of the next generation. So you've got Moses and Aaron, and then Aaron has two sons. These sons are rather famous, but not for good reasons. Their names are Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus chapter 10, they offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And the way Moses writes it, he says, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Why did God judge Nadab and Abihu? Because they offered unauthorized fire, which God had not commanded them. Thankfully, we don't live in the Old Covenant. But God still cares how we worship. And he wants us to worship according to his word. So we want to align ourselves with God and his purposes. Well, since God's word drives everything that we do, we want everything that we do to be clearly derived from his word. Now, why is this? Because when God's word dwells in us, it then flows through us. God's word flows through us. His word in us enables his ministry through us. Look again at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, as God's word lives in us, it then flows through us to teach. To teach is to positively instruct in the word of God and to admonish. And to admonish is to guard against wandering from the truth of God's word. Now, some professing Christians, they're like a pond or a lake. God's word, like a stream, it flows into them and it collects there. And over time, their life reflects that. They got some algae around the edges, there's some fungus growing there, maybe some swampy or marshy areas. But God's design is not that God's people be like that, but rather that we're a fresh flowing stream. God's word comes to us and then flows through us to others, refreshes us, and then through us refreshes someone else. So if you were to take a step back and look at the fruit, the effect of God's word in you, at some level you would know how effective God's word, how richly it's living in you by how you refresh others. Now, you may not be someone, it's likely statistically that you're not, someone who could stand up and teach you know, hundreds of people, or maybe not even a Sunday school class. But everyone has a responsibility to teach. Well, how do we do this? Paul says it's by singing. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. One reason we want to think carefully about what we sing is that congregational singing is one of the most important teaching ministries in the church. There is no Sunday school in the Bible, but there is singing in the Bible. So we don't want to sing anything contrary to Scripture, but we also want what we sing to closely reflect what God's Word says. And the gospel that it's the center of the word. So if God's word governs our worship, Christ will be at the center. The Christ-centered nature of worship. And God says we worship in Jesus' name. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, we do what we do in worship because Jesus is who Jesus is. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. We do what Jesus wants in worship because 
it's not our church. It's his church. He's the head of the church. Colossians 1 continues, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I mean, imagine this. The infinite, majestic, transcendent God lives in a human being. And that human being is Jesus. So the sphere in which we live and work and worship is in Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, if you can't do what you're doing in Jesus' name, don't do it. We worship in Jesus' name and we do it with gratitude to God. We do everything in Jesus' name, then we give thanks, Paul says, to God the Father through him. And now, just look down at your Bible for a second. I like to track through this paragraph just quickly. Verse 15, be thankful. Verse 16, sing with thankfulness. Verse 17, do everything giving thanks to God. Three times, one paragraph, God says, live with gratitude. God is so good to us. Is this children? I mean, we live in an unprecedented era of gifts that are easy to see. Yet we so often lose sight of this. There's so much sin in us. Our own complaining hearts, our temptation to, to selfishness or anger or pride. It's so eager to get our sight off of God's good gifts and onto ourselves. Or if that's not enough, we got a ton of brokenness in the world around us. And what's going on in our communities? What's going on between people and in places that pursue and perceive politics differently. Between people that, that disagree on the severity even of what we're experiencing right now in our lives. It's so easy to get our eyes off of Christ and onto us and our circumstances. So what does gratitude do? It refocuses us. We live with gratitude. It, it trains us to view what's going on around us differently and to focus on God and his goodness. And, and to, to help us understand this, I want, I want to think back. This, by the way, this isn't, didn't happen at church, so I'm not referring to something at church. But I was uh, part of a, a group, and there were a lot of people angry with this group. And the anger came out in uh, profanity, in hatred, and unfair criticism and gossip in a way. I mean, it, it was hurtful. And it was walking through this, and when you receive something like that, if you've been on the receiving end of something like that, it's real easy to feel sorry for yourself. You see this in prophets, Elijah's on Mount Carmel, and then suddenly he's in a cave. God, look at me. Woe is me. Jonah, the city repents. Woe is me. God, why would you do that? And I'm the same way. And so I'm sitting there, and truth is, it hurt. It was discouraging. But the sad thing is it brought out in me a heart of self-reflection that revealed that my heart was still selfish, quick to feel bad for myself. But the Lord in that moment began to work in my heart. And I thought, well, I can sit here all day and feel sorry for myself. That ain't going to get anyone anywhere. Or I can begin to reflect on God and his goodness and express thanks. And so in that moment, what I did was I began reaching out to other people 
not for help in this case, sometimes I do that, but in this case to express my gratitude to them. So the call, text, note. And what changed? My entire perspective. None of my circumstances changed. All those people still thought what they thought, rightly or wrongly, they still thought what they thought. But God, through expressions of gratitude, began to change my heart and began to change the way I viewed my circumstances. You see, gratitude comes to us when we fix our eyes on God and his goodness. When we express that gratitude to others rather than on our circumstances. I promise you, a year from now, your circumstances will be different, but some of them will still be terrible. But God's goodness will still be there. We can fix our eyes on ourselves and how we feel. This is terrible. We can fix our eyes on the circumstances around us. And I can promise you, if you look there, there's more than enough bad news to greet you. But brothers and sisters, the God who spoke all things into being and said, that's good, the one who is the source of all goodness, still reigns supreme, is still active in our lives, still loves his children more than you could imagine. That's all still true. Giving thankfulness in your hearts to God. So how do we know when God's word is driving our worship? When our response to worship is gratitude in the name of Jesus. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.